Welcome everyone to Rock M Nation Podcast. This is another episode of Dive Cuts. I am your host every episode, all the time, always. So happy to be here. Sam Snelling with me as always. Wondering if NCAA games will actually happen. Matthew J. Harris. Matt, how's it going? It's going well. Um, I just want to see a schedule, man. Just want, I just want to see tangible proof that, yes, uh, in less than a month, that there are plans to play games. Because um, it's hard to talk about a season when we don't know who the team we write about and talk about is going to play. So the season is supposed to start... November like, 25. In like four weeks. Yes. I have... 75% of one preview written out of 14. Um, and mostly because like I just can't get into a mode because I don't know what's happening. It's 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 really difficult to uh, write a preview on a team when you don't really like know what the season is going to look like, who they're playing. And you know, I'm kind of able to filter in and like who they have coming back and maybe why you like them. But really, like, this is, we're reaching a, a, a time where <laughs> we should have some inkling of who Missouri is going to play. Um, and we don't. And it's entirely possible that at some point in the very near future that we, we find out that, hey, we're just going to play in the conference. And that's all, that's all it is. Um, I don't know. Like, it's, it's a really weird place to be. In theory, they're they're going to play TCU in January. In theory, and, and so that that's a game against the number eighty five or eighty six team and Kim Pom from last year. Um, uh, you got to play a minimum of thirteen games this year uh, to be eligible for any sort of postseason. So, still a dozen short. Um, <laughs> Which we assume will probably come by way of uh, the in-conference schedule. But, I mean, we've even seen, you know, like, I feel like college football, like, everybody had these good feelings when games started being played. But now we're kind of seeing the difficulty, uh, you know, as, as, as Missouri is heading to play at Florida this weekend with a team like Florida's practiced you know, three or four times in like the last three weeks because of positive, you know, COVID tests. So like, this is a safe environment for us to be sending student athletes to compete uh, in. And it's, oh, it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy to me that, so I, you know, last night, um, we're recording this Wednesday evening. Last night, the LA Dodgers won uh, the world championship. One of my favorite things is American sports leagues calling their championship the world championship. Uh, appreciate it. Um, what about the Philippines, Matt? What about their baseball teams? Um, but, uh, yeah, so the Dodgers had to pull Justin Turner, who people don't follow baseball. I have enough people that I follow on Twitter that I kind of know who this dude is. He's like one of the best players on, on LA. He's like, you know, kind of captain level, um, big money, third baseman. Um, 
hard to miss in the lineup. Big beard, red hair. Uh, but they pulled him in the middle of a game, in the middle of a deciding World Series game, because he had a second positive test come back. Two positive COVID tests. And they pulled him from the game, and then L.A. Uh, won, and he's back out on the field like celebrating with his teammates and like you know kissing his wife or whatever and after basically uh, telling (laughs) telling them to f off right he had to quarantine like and so like my response on twitter was basically all capsing just like what are we doing (laughs) i don't i don't understand i really don't understand how like missouri and florida are going to play football this weekend when florida is barely able to field the team and they're still having guys test positive they had six new positive tests this week this is the thing that that gets me is on earlier in the week we had the pseudo bubble in orlando for college basketball breakdown espn basically said you know we've been in negotiations with these teams and you know we're trying to hash out you know, COVID protocols. And the gist of it was is that they wanted to, you know, have retest time. So if guys had been um, 90 days clear of a COVID test, you, they would be retested. Some teams didn't want to do that. They're just like, look, if it's if he's fine, if he's recovered, he's fine. We're not going to do, we don't want to do a retest. There were other issues about, like, if a guy did test positive in this pseudo bubble, um, would they have to quarantine in Orlando for 14 days alone, or would there have to be would the whole team have to quarantine? You know, if the whole team has to quarantine in Orlando for 14 days, that kind of defeats the purpose of doing the bubble because it impacts the rest of your non-con schedule. Um, ESPN wanted to strictly adhere to these protocols, which are CDC backed, and um, also NCAA protocols. Um, schools. Uh, decided no, we'd rather follow our less stringent conference rules because <laughs> so, it's it's cheaper. So, at some point, this became unworkable. Um, ESPN said um, we're canceling this, and Missouri is one of a dozen teams now that went from like waiting to see if this MTE thing was going to play out and they could get two to three games in Orlando to having um, this is a technical term jack shit. So. Now, Missouri, and consider, too, that Missouri also saw its series against Kansas push back a year. So, Missouri... Which, which I'm, I'm honestly, like, I'm, I'm, fi- I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. That that makes sense to me, you know, that... Like, the, the, the point of them starting the series was to start in the Sprint Center as, like, a kickoff in front of fans. If you can't have fans, fans there, then why are you sense. playing at the Sprint Center? It makes total sense why they yeah. do it. My point is... You now have, like, if if you had played the MTE and gotten two to three games and you had then managed to keep the Kansas game on the schedule, you'd be at 22 games with a full con- if you had played the full conference slate. 22 or 23 games. And that would have been enough to hit the NCAA threshold to qualify for the tournament, to qualify cons- for consideration in the at- and be seeded. 
right now Missouri doesn't have a non-con schedule aside from TCU, which is probably in late January, assuming that we don't know what things are going to look like two weeks from now, much less three months from now. But how is Missouri going to, you know, put together a, you know, a a non-conference slate in less than a month that's going to, one, you know, I think have them schedule teams that can adhere to good testing and quarantine protocols to make sure the guys are safe, make sure the players, these the unpaid labor is uh, not put in at undue risk. And also, like, how are you going to build, like, if you're going to take that risk, it should be to try and put together a good enough con- non-conference slate that is in, has some theoretical utility for the selection committee. Like, are you even going to be able to do that now? Like, are you going to be able to find any one or two quad one opponents or quad two games? I don't know. I don't you can probably call Gonzaga. They seem willing to schedule just about anybody. I mean, call <laughs> whatever you got to do, I guess. But I, my point is, logistically, like, we're, we're, I think you got to be getting to a point where you you, you got to call it. And yeah just for the sake of like making sure that you can have stuff worked out and, you know, ensure that, you know, travel plans adhere to safety protocols that you're able to, you know, make sure that you're going to have enough, also enough just time built in for, let's say a couple of Missouri players do contract the virus. Are you going to have a schedule that builds in enough wiggle room to, adjust games and move slots and move dates yeah where you could like quarantine off the guys with the positive tests yeah work diligently over a few days to to test everybody else in the team and the traveling party to make sure that you have enough to kind of move forward um so and i think like that's one of the things i i don't know like matt i don't know if you read rockham nation at all but uh uh our football writer nate edwards had a nice piece recently that was kind of talking about how uh, COVID has done one thing and that's really shined a light on how flexible football game scheduling can really be. And so it's kind of ridiculous that they do this scheduling where it's like, oh, we're going to play, you know, Army uh, in 2032. It's like, I mean, you know why they're they're scheduling that out, but it's, it's still dumb to have that much... Um, scheduled and immovable so i do think that if you get creative and you get flexible like there is a way to make sure that you are getting the games that you need in um but, with that but it, it, it's it's comes, really going to be a challenge though like it's not going to be easy to pull off with that flexibility though also comes the fact that you know are you know will the game still have value for you like, if you were to schedule, like, let's say, let's say you keep Illinois on the schedule, you're able to lock in something with bragging rights. But then Mark Smith and, you know, Drew Smith come down with a positive cases. Is that, and you manage to test your traveling party, trust everybody, and we're good to go. What value does that game now have for you if, you know, if those guys aren't playing? 
you know, if if you're in Illinois at full strength, they're not going to sit Ayo DeSunmu and Adam, you know, Adam Wolf. They're not going to do that. They're going to play, or Adam Miller, they're going to play their full roster. And so, like, if the goal of it was to get a quad one win opportunity out of it, but COVID's, like, reduced the quality of the roster that's trying to achieve that, what's the aim here so that that's i guess it's less to me it's the flexibility than what are we trying to achieve here like if we're going to put people at risk like what what's the trade-off and what's the return going to be for that Um, yeah and like and that's honestly it's it's a challenge that's really confronted college football as guys are opting out of their season like lsu had you know several of their uh top defenders decide that they just weren't going to play this year uh, several, you know, wide receivers decide they're going to do the same, and it, it's it, so everyone's like, "Why is LSU's defense struggling?" It's like, well, yeah, I mean, they're they're playing with the guys they probably weren't really expecting to play with, um, you know. And I think that that's kind of what you're so if you're saying like Mizzou has a bragging rights game, and they have to hold out, you know, Drew Smith and Mark Smith, just as an example. Um, it is going to create an imbalance, and uh, I th- I do think that that imbalance is felt um, in in basketball a lot more so than than football because of you know just the sheer roster size, and uh, you typically can have you know eighty some odd players on scholarship, uh, you know. But the reality is, like Missouri is even down to like in the mid sixties. I want to say like sixty four, sixty five. Yeah. Uh, scholarship players right now um and you know so many of those guys are you know it like the difference between uh a senior um right guard i think that is where uh you know case cook plays yeah um you know a guy with experience a guy that really is an anchor for that offensive line if missouri loses him on the offensive line you know a shaky unit gets really shaky you know and and so it's just like it's kind of in that situation, like if if Missouri last year dealt with injuries to Jeremiah Tillman uh, and Mark Smith, and things didn't go well with those guys not in the lineup. You know, they started out in conference play, and they were, you know, they were getting beat up pretty pretty seriously. So, if we're in a situation in like January and and you know, some important players and not just at Missouri, but, but throughout, you know, throughout college basketball, if those guys are missing games because of positive tests or for whatever, like it just creates this just weird environment of, um, you know, moving forward just for the sake of moving forward. And I, uh, you know, without kind of getting into, you know, generalized, um, you know, discussion of our, our COVID policy in this country, it feels like like so much of this uh, has been the like America in general, like the attitude of the country, really since about late April. Like, let's just move forward and just deal with it, and just keep moving forward and deal with it, um, as opposed to you know taking serious precautions and and backing everything up, uh, and then. And then taking appropriate steps as you see them, and I think like that's what you've seen with college football and the struggles that they've sort of had to 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 
get games played and and to have guys available um it's just it's created i mean it's they've played games you can give them that but it's certainly been a mess and it hasn't been easy and we're at a point where i mean i really like i'm curious to see if missouri and florida actually play this week and if they play it'll be pretty miraculous considering um all the things that are kind of going against the game being played at this point. I mean, to that's me, where we are. And this, that that's a good sort of natural transition to the point that I, that I think you and I were talking about before we came on, which is, to me, I think you go conference only at this point. There are a number of iterations which we can talk about what that looks like. There are several you could try. But mainly, I think if you nicks the idea of non-con and you say we want to try instead of getting 25 games in with an MTE in 14 weeks let's try and get 18 games in in that span now you've opened up that schedule you've opened up that block of time to where you can move games around you can adjust the schedule to accommodate you know, positive tests, quarantine protocols. And so what... Well, like they did with moving, you know, the Kentucky game. Yeah. You know, in Vanderbilt, that you know, they left that room. It's like, oh, well, let's bump, you know, Mizzou-Kentucky up. We'll bump Mizzou-Florida back. We'll throw Vanderbilt to the end of the year and and done. And And to me, what that would do is you would ideally have a more representative body of work for the conference. Would there not be the non-con and the cross-pollination that we use to generate the net rankings? No. But, you know, if you, you know, went conference only and you used that winner to, the winner of the regular season title for your auto bid, across, and you did that across 34 conferences, you'd seed half the field. And I have faith that the selection committee if it knew this is what the challenge would be, would find a way to at least get 34 teams in the field. Would seeding be great? Maybe not as precise as it has been in the past, but there's enough, there'd be enough data, I think, that you could get the proper 34 at-large teams into the field. I think you might see a tournament that's going to have a few more upsets because we might have some wonky seeding, but you could make that happen. And you could do it with conference-only stuff, and you would still give these leagues flexibility to, to play with. So the question is, what would that look like for, the, for a league like the SEC? I think you'd have to m- move away from the unbalanced schedule model that it uses right now. That, I think that that's, that's probably the way I would do it. I wouldn't want to keep the unbalanced schedule. Because I think I don't. That's just not going to produce to me. And this may be off in, in the in the tall grass, but that's not going to produce to me standings that are representative across the entire conference. If if you were to keep the current model that way, but we we can kind of pick through this. Yeah, well, I think you you kind of mentioned doing something where you you do um, basically break it down and and have more divisions even though the sec technically doesn't have divisions in in basketball but i think you could still sort of work it for a season and just say okay like 
you know, these teams are going to play each other, um, you know, more and you're only going to play this opponent or, you know, the folks on this side of the bracket once, and that'll get you to the, you know, the number of games that you need. Uh, and then you would have kind of two separate, um, you know, tournaments to kind of have a, like a, a, you know, a true championship game, kind of the, you know, the way that they do it in football. So you have, you know, a ter- tournament plan where, you know, the SEC East versus the SEC West and, and then uh, that person gets, you know, the the next bid or, or whatever. Um, yeah, I still think that there's a lot of room for flexibility and 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 getting to where you know because so there are 14 teams in the league, which means you would have 13 opponents, and if you played everybody twice, you're already at 26. And didn't the NCAA kind of set a limit? They set a maximum of 25, but you, <laughs> you could but you could go to 27 with MTEs. So I think what would a would a postseason tournament count as an MTE? I don't even think I would do a postseason tournament. If you, if if you have thirteen teams playing each other twice, to me that's a representative enough sample to say, you know, let's just take the the team that finishes at the top of this heap gets the auto bid. Like I I don't think a a tournament like the tournament exists. Less to award an auto bid than it does now, just to generate TV revenue. Like I've always thought that, you know, why do you play a regular season for seeding to hold a conference tournament where you don't, where the best teams' reward might be if they get picked off in the quarterfinal? Like yeah. I, I always thought the Ivy League and back in the day the Pac-10 did it right, where they said, "You all played each other 18 times. Like let's, you know." And it's a truism in, you know, like European soccer. You know, in the Premier League, they don't play 38 games and then go to Liverpool and say, okay, you guys now, you like, you dusted everyone in the league by a, a wide margin. Now you got to play a tournament to win the title. Like, I get that in American sports, we're more playoff and, you know, tournament oriented. But in this sort of climate where, you know, it's not good to like, I think you could argue that like the SC tournament's a bubble and you could try it, but I think the biggest thing that we're seeing now is the KISS method is the best way to go. Just keep it really, really, really simple. And if you did round robin after twenty six games, team that wins the teams that's in first gets the bid and, you know, good luck to them. We'll see you next year. The one thing I think that I would like or I think it would be interesting to try is to go to divisions and do kind of what the old Big 12 did, which was Missouri, when it was there, it would play Big 12 North teams 10 times. It would play five home and homes with Big 12 North teams, and it would split in the South. It would play three Big 12 South teams on the road, three Big 12 South teams at home, and that's how you got to your 16 Big 12 games. I'd do the same thing for the SEC. You know, Missouri plays 12 games against the SEC East. It plays four home games against the SEC West, four road games against the SEC West. Everyone's played each other. Is it a little bit unbalanced? Yeah, but at least everyone's played everyone. And, you know, the, the divisions, I think, tend to be relatively balanced out pretty well right now, at least this year. So that's, 
one way you could do it, and you'd be at 19 games, and you'd be able to still have that schedule flexibility. So there are ways you could do conference only and still make it pretty compelling. And if the auto bid is attached, now the stakes are there where, you know, if we're getting into late February, you know, it's not just, oh, we're, you know, we're fighting it out for, you know, which team's going to get a double buy. It's we're fighting to see who's going to get into the NCAA tournament and avoid maybe the selection committee not quite having enough information to seed them. So I think that, that that's one way you could really attach some stakes, still keep some schedule flexibility, and, you know, manage to put a compelling product on the floor. So I, I is, would Is it weird that Missouri's, uh, like, three permanent rivals are all in the SEC West in football? I think so. I don't know how they got Ole Miss attached at all. I, I think it's proximity, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Like, Just... I mean, like Oxford uh, is not far from Missouri, so there's a. I mean, if it's we're basically doing... it's. I mean, that's basically like Memphis Metro. So, I, I'm of the mind that. Like, if you were to, like, keep a look at the unbalanced schedule right now, we could say we kind of know Missouri would have seven opponents because they're going to play Arkansas, A&M, and Ole Miss twice, and they're going to they're scheduled to play TCU. So we know that there are possibly seven games, like, you know, what that would look like. But, again, we don't have a schedule. So um, it's just really confounding to even, like, not see a schedule or see – you know, who's playing at this point, but, you know, outlets are putting out their preseason previews. They're, you know, putting out their newcomers of the year. They're putting out, you know, predicted orders of finish when we don't even know who's playing each other. We don't know what the schedules look like. It's, you know, we're probably weird in that we, we wait to see what the schedule is going to look like when we pick game by game, but it's, it's just sort of surreal to me that we're having usual preseason kind of build up and we don't even know when or if some teams are playing so it's i think that's what's what still makes me kind of laugh is like i I read the cbs preview before we came on and it was like if it was 2019 2020 i'd be like yeah this makes sense but now like we have no it just seems weird to me that we're trying to forecast where teams are going to finish when we have no clue who they're going to play or when they're going to play, or what what format the season's even going to come to resemble. Just yeah, just... I mean, I I I agree with you. I think that's probably one of the reasons why I've really just struggled um, more than any other year to to start writing previews. Um, you know, and it's also you know when you when you don't really have. Um, you know, a clear idea of the schedule. I also think that you can tell by the way a coach schedules, like how they feel about their team. Um, if they loaded up with a bunch of, you know, cupcakes, you look at their non-con schedule and it's, um, you know, it's all schools like the Citadel and, um, you know, Carolina upstate and stuff like that. Like I, I think you can easily say, well, this coach is clearly trying to build some confidence in a young roster that may not be very good. Um, But I think that, like, you know, one thing that we've kind of talked about is, 
you know, before everything got thrown uh, into the shredder, you know, Missouri's non-conference schedule was really shaping up to be a tough one. And I think that uh, equates to what we've kind of heard about the confidence in the program as to what kind of team they think they're going to have. Um, I think nationally the, uh, you know, the expectations and uh, the predictions are all going to be a lot lower. Uh, but I, you know, I think, I think coach Martin seems to like the team he has. I don't think he would line up, uh, the kind of schedule that they were looking at if he didn't think that they, he had a good team. Um, and so it, it's, it's, well, it's kind of funny, like when you see these predictions and you're kind of referencing CBS, I mean, Gary Parrish, who actually, I like Gary a lot. I, I think you know, he and Norlander have a good podcast and um, I, I like Parrish because he's actually like kind of funny and doesn't seem to take college basketball too seriously. And I think that's kind of where I am. Like, I mean, it's, it's a dumb sport. I love it, but it's, it's a dumb sport. And uh, yeah, so he, he actually was uh, one of the guys who picked Mizzou 13th and I, Matt, I will eat my hat if Mizzou finishes 13th. They didn't finish 13th last year with a roster that was unhealthy <laughs> in a, uh, I mean, what, they ended up 7-11? I kind of think that's probably, you know, about the floor that we're, we're looking at with this team. You know, to speak to your earlier point, when you look at, you know, Missouri's schedule and the confidence that, you know, that they must feel in terms of putting it together, they were going to play Kansas, who was number one in Kimpom. Illinois, number 30. Wichita State, number 39. Liberty, 79th. They were uh, assigned. TCU, who would have been 86th. Bradley, 107th. Utah, 114th. Oral Roberts, number 135. And that's before you even get to Myrtle Beach. But eight of their games would have been against Kimpom Top 150 teams. Five against the Kimpom Top 100 three against the Ken Palm top 50. That's that's not a schedule you assemble if you think you're going to be fighting to stay out of the SEC basement. Or if you think that you know the goal is to just try and gut your way to an NIT bid. Um, you and I have sort of you know picked over the rosters and we sort of looked at everything. And Missouri sits in like probably what we would call like the third tier of teams in the SEC. And there's probably a handful of teams in there that really we would probably say would finish anywhere between like 6th and 11th, probably. Um, yeah. Yeah, I that, think... I Like, I don't, I don't think Missouri has a roster that is going to compete for like a top four spot. Um, I think ceiling for them might be like if everything goes right fifth, but I think seventh eighth feels more comfortable to me yeah i think we've talked about like are they going to be are they going to be a team that's going to sort of outperform a south carolina are they going to be able to outperform an a&m or an auburn i think those are kind of the teams we're, we're less bullish on old miss than some people are um yeah seriously um it's about so the CBS crew had them either eighth or ninth, except for somebody had them eleventh. I 
It looks like David Cobb had them 11th. That's about where I'd probably put them. So when I look at the pecking order there, I'd probably have Missouri in that mix with South Carolina, Auburn for 7th, 8th, and 9th. That's kind of the window where I look at them, uh, at least right now. Um, Depending on what the schedule would have given them. Was Arkansas in that group? Arkansas is kind of in that borderline, but it was almost unanimously in sixth. Um, One had them seventh, one had them fifth, three had them sixth. So, um, I'm... Yeah, the same guy who who had them, uh, had Ole Miss where I would have him, had Arkansas at fifth, and I I do not like Arkansas that much. I like the pieces Arkansas has. I just don't know what it that that group is going to look like with under Mus because we'll, we'll have to bring some. We'll have to bring in Blake uh, to talk about kind of what the SEC looks like, assuming when we get a schedule here. But Arkansas's got a, just a bunch of different pieces. They've got a really good freshman class, but they've also got a lot of transfers. Mus tends to lean more heavily on his transfers than he does on his freshmen but he doesn't but i think i think moody's gonna play a lot moody's gonna play a lot but really the question is who after moody does is gonna see time and sort of what that rotation looks like um so that that's where my hang-up is on arkansas they've only got one actual returner that played you know pretty consistent in bountiful minutes and that was desi sills the rest is sort of just you know, I, I want to see what Muss eventually settles on for a rotation before I can even really feel confident gauging what Arkansas is going to be. But um, point is, the best we've been able to do is really just kind of chunk teams into tiers. And I'm, you know, to me, the differentiator is seeing the schedule and seeing what every team has to go through and... Like I would love to be able to compare head to head what Tennessee's going to face versus what Kentucky's going to face, and not just who they're playing, but when they're playing them. Does a young Kentucky team get a front-loaded schedule? Like, are they? Because as you and I have talked about before this pod and before we record tonight, Kentucky tends to take two months to gel, and they really don't start figuring out their identity probably till early January. Are they going to get loaded up with marquee games in early January that's going to you know, really put them in a bind? Is Tennessee going to you know, face a front-loaded schedule on it for its part there? And is that a veteran group with some continuity that can handle it? I just want to see kind of how each team's sort of path gets laid out for them. And then once I go through and you know pick the games, then I feel like I have a much better sense, not just for the rosters, but know where teams i think are going to hit rough patches like i remember last winter we were saying you know in the preseason you know missouri's preseason missouri's non-con schedule is not bad but man the last three weeks of january are just brutal and that's where missouri you know really hit some roadblocks they had mark smith and they had jeremiah tillman you know get injured and they had a really tough stretch and that kind of sent them reeling a little bit it's nice to be able to look ahead and have that foresight to go, here's where we think some traps are going to be for a team on the schedule. So it, it feels like that's 
the one component I'm missing before I can really start to feel comfortable even getting into preseason mode is at least knowing what you know how teams are going to try and navigate the schedule because mm-hmm. we don't have a schedule at all. <laughs> well, right, and if you know somebody like Arkansas, who I am admittedly a a, uh, a hog skeptic uh, as far as you know their placement in some of these lists, but if if they get sort of a in the unbalanced schedule they get a little bit of an easy go um and they get their tough games sprinkled in uh so they can kind of you know win two lose one win three lose one um you know so they they don't kind of get hammered and and sort of lose like three or four in a row uh, then yeah, I mean it wouldn't surprise me to see them like win eleven games. But again, like this is in a traditional SEC schedule where you're playing uh, eighteen games, so eleven and seven. You know, but without the schedule, there's just no way of knowing uh, like what you can expect and what a team is going to you know look at because you know even as I put together all the previews for in years past, I've always like included like win loss predictions on each each of those games and I've gone back to what I actually picked. And in some of those cases like I've looked at it and I'm like, well, I've got this team starting 11 and 0. That's probably not going to happen for a team that I'm expecting to uh, you know, win 13 games or something. Like they're they're probably not going to go, you know, 11 and 0 and then lose uh, you know, the back end like that. So I would go in and I would sprinkle in, you know, reassessing the schedule and how it lays out um you know kind of still end up with the you know the record that you think they're probably going to have based upon who they're playing um you know but in a more in a way that makes sense with the flow and and not having that to build off it's just you know like i I, just kind of tossing my hands up I, i i don't know what to expect uh, from the SEC this year, um, like you and I could rank rosters. I mean that, like that's a pretty easy task. But, but I think we've kind of done that with like the tiers because, like, I mean we can we can quibble a little bit like over spots. Um, you know, I think why I like that that you've kind of established you know these tiers is like okay like. I do think that the roster on, you know, this team and the roster on this team are comparable. You know, so it makes sense that uh they would be in a in a in the same tier. But who's going to get the benefit of the schedule and how that schedule is going to play? Maybe those two teams only play each other once and they play on one team's home court. So that's going to give them the edge to finish with a better record. Um it doesn't necessarily mean that like so let's just maybe use like Florida and Alabama as an example. Um, You know, maybe we think that they're equal teams, but, you know, Alabama has to play at Florida. You know, last year Alabama went to play at Florida and got got trounced. Um, I think so. I think that was them. Uh, Well, let's just pretend that happened. So, uh, but yeah, so you know, if Alabama has to go to to Florida again this year, and that's the only time that they play, 
and Florida wins that game, that gives Florida the the edge. It makes for does it make Florida better? Well, no, not really, but it gives them the edge in it, yeah, in the in the seeding in uh in the way that the you know, the conference is going to lay out. And I think like that's kind of where we need to figure out the difference between you know, Missouri, South Carolina, Ole Miss, Auburn, like all these teams that were like Okay, like there's a lot to like about each of them. There's a lot to sort of point to as why you think they're flawed. Uh, and so who's going to get that schedule benefit? And at this point, we just have zero idea. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard for me to sort of have positive or negative feelings about a team when I don't know who they're going to play. And to, to your earlier point, you know, when you talk about what we do know, we know Missouri's going to play Arkansas, A&M, and Ole Miss six times. But if you were to like ask me what Missouri's record is, I'd say probably three and three in those games. You know, I think they'll drop one at home, they'll pick one off on the road, and then they'll split the other ones. And so, cool, Missouri's three and three in those games. Like, what are they going to do in the other 12 that's going to help you know dictate that? Who do they get, you know... And sometimes, you know, you can go through and look at past cycles and kind of guess where the home and homes are going to be and kind of guess who they might get just once and just where they might get sent. And you might get 75% of the schedule right, but how are they going to, but are we, you know, how's that going to work? What scheduling format are they going to pick in the middle of a pandemic? I have no clue. (laughs) So... I think for folks who want to hear us like get into preseason mode, it's almost impossible because I just I fundamentally don't know what the conference is going to actually do. Like, how will it function? And until we know that, everything else is just sort of saying, "Oh, I like that roster. Oh, I like you know what you know Cal you know has at this spot, but it that." doesn't have any real consequence because we don't know what those teams are going to do against each other so kentucky is like one of those teams that oh like they're always going to have the most talent they they don't always have the most depth but like their top two three four guys are usually going to be you know more talented um in in years past like cal has kind of been able to bring back players i think surprising to a lot of people like they're really bringing back nobody because that that team last year was good but was not a special team uh and they lost like everybody like i mean guys who are gonna play basketball for a long time but aren't gonna be nba stars i mean he certainly has no you know anthony davis car anthony towns or devin booker uh even tyler harrow um, but I think especially like if you're looking at, at this year's team, you know, I, I always point to like, you know, okay. Like we talked about beforehand, I, I really like Terrence Clark. I think Terrence Clark has that kind of ability that can, uh, elevate Kentucky more so than some of the other teams in the SEC. Like I, I know that there are a lot of good players in the SEC, but if you're, if you're asking for like one special talent, a guy that can elevate his team beyond what 
they might be otherwise. I think he's kind of that guy. And as much as as much as like I know like the 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 cool pick for player of the year is like you know Keontae Johnson. As much as I like Keontae Johnson, like is he that special of a player who can elevate Florida to being the best team in the SEC? I love Keontae Johnson. I love Keontae. I I, I honestly think like I love Ke- I, I love Keontae Johnson. I think he's a guy who's probably going to play ten years in the NBA. Like I he he does a lot of things well. But is he special in that way? And I just I and that's to me like that's my hang up with with Tennessee and we talked about this also beforehand. Like my hang up with Tennessee is like who's special on that roster? They have a lot of really good players, and I think there's enough talent for them to be I mean, they should absolutely be top three. I, there's no excuse for them to be at worst, the third best team in the league. They are certainly uh, should be top two, and they they will probably contend for the top spot. But like, I don't look at Tennessee as having like a special college player the way that Grant Williams was special. The one mistake I think people have made is like they've they're in forecasting the SEC is I think they're overstating, you know, where this thing is in terms of like the marinating process like i last year the sec was historically bad it was a three-bid league to me this year it's probably a six-bid league and maybe the top seed line for the conference champ is a three seed if terrence clark is really special in kentucky somehow puts together maybe they get to a two but i'm not i don't see a one seed at least right now, in the mix. And three or four is about as high as I'd be willing to go. And of those six teams, like that, there's probably two or three that are going to be, you know, last four in or Dayton contenders. Like, Well, yeah, and I think, like, that's that's the thing is, and I, you kind of alluded to this, but even, even in, like, past years where the SEC was down they would still kind of have like one or two teams that were really really good and i think everybody in general like most of the sec has slightly improved who they were from a year ago but i don't think we're looking at like this great leap for the league because i just don't think like i think kentucky is probably looking at a top 20-ish kind of Kempom finish. Tennessee, like, it wouldn't surprise me to see both, like, Kentucky and Tennessee as the two top teams in the SEC and probably far and away, like, you know, better than everybody else and barely be inside, like, the top 15 or 20 of, of Kempom. Like, I just... what the... I think the league is better, just not that much better. <laughs> It's a year away. Like, if, you know, let's all hope that 2021-22 looks something close to normal and we don't have just a crap load of roster churn, if we get another offseason... Well, Matt, we could have everybody back. That's even the fun part. Except, of course, for Kentucky, who will, of course, have nobody back. You got two years in Lexington. You can't get... <laughs> I mean, that I don't say that in jest, like... You got two years, or you're getting recruited over. 
like Keon Brooks, it's got to happen for him this year. Like, or else he's gonna <laughs> Cal's gonna have you know two or three other guys come in and you know take his minutes, and that that's just the way it works, and that's what you sign up for in, in Lexington. But I look at the this is probably the best recruiting class this season, like as a group collectively, collective talent acquisition for the league in five or six years. You know, Terrence Clark is special. B.J. Boston could be special. Um, Drew Cooper could be special at Auburn. But this is a year where I think those guys come in, you know, Alabama, Arkansas, you know, really cement their rosters and what they want. And, you know, their coaches finally, you know, get all their assets in place. And then we have a big year in 21 and 22. I, I think there could be some really special teams in 21 and 22. Like, I I do think if Bama can keep recruiting at its current level, I think if Arkansas can hold on to some of this talent and develop it a little bit and be less reliant on transfers and really build out a core, I really think the league could be special in 2021-22. It just seems like everyone's kind of wanting to push that storyline this year, and I don't necessarily think that's true. I think it's going to be a... I think it's 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 a testament to the schools in the league that we're talking about five to six bids being a little bit of, you know, nothing all that notable. Like, before 2015, this league was just in a bad way like pack 12-ish kind of bad but programs have invested they've hired good coaches they've upgraded recruiting and now a five or six bid year feels kind of like meh you know oh we're gonna have a couple protected seeds meh like i think it's a testament to, to what the league and what ad's and coaches have done that they've elevated that standard over the last five years um and I just don't think people should get too far out on their skis when they look at what the league is this year. So I'm, I'm excited to see what is coming and, you know, excited to see, you know, which teams and which programs, you know, begin to sort of establish themselves and how the firmament changes. Because it, it's going to be a fun next couple of years if, if we can have some stability and some continuity. So what everybody uh, who's tuning in really wants to know, Matt, mm-hmm. um, we really have to bring back the conversation about the players as cocktails. You've been so insistent for that piece of the spreadsheet. So insistent. You still haven't decided well, what drink Ed Chang is. <laughs> it's... So I, you know, I think it's a little weird to uh, assign a, a drink to a player we really don't know a lot about. Um, we haven't really seen them in a uh, Ed Chang, or really even, you know, Wilmore, or uh, you know, we we did give you know drinks to uh, Drew Bugs, and um, I think jokingly to uh, to Wilmore, but um, but yeah, like I think it's difficult to. Like, like, I really feel we know Drew Smith, we know Xavier Pinson, we know Jeremiah Tillman, um, we know Torrance Watson. Uh, 
we know enough about these guys at this point to equate them to a cocktail. And I think the I think I will say that the guy that we know the best at this point is Mitchell Smith because he's been around for so long. <laughs> uh, I think RJ Layton actually had a great uh, tweet um, kind of piggybacking off one of the things that you said about how long Mitchell has been committed to the program. Uh, it, like what was going on at the time that, you know, Mitchell committed. It was like, I I think uh, I can't feel my face was the number one song. I think, because... he, I think he committed in September of 2014. <laughs> it's, it's so long ago um yeah so so that's why i don't think we could have done better than mitchell smith being the rusty nail cocktail no no we couldn't have could not have but we still need to discuss this because uh like we kind of decided that like javon pickett is a, a rum and coke yep is what it is you know what you're getting um so how about how about we we give him a little bit of a flair instead of just you know like a standard like rail drink and we'll say uh, Javon Pickett is a Cuba Libre. We'll let him be a Cuba Libre. So a Cuba Libre is a little bit different than a, a regular Roman Coke, um, and a lot of people just think it's a Roman Coke with a lime, which is technically incorrect because it has it does have to be uh, a a white rum so it can't be like an aged or spiced rum it has to be a white rum coke and a and a lime so that's a cuba libre i i'm i'm trying to think what, what did we have for what did we have for torrents what did we so so torrents what did we I think have for torrents it was a a, a pickleback oh man poor torrents poor poor torrents doesn't even get a cool sounding drink name. It's... Oh. So Matt, can you tell people what a pickleback is? I'm having to go back in and refresh. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I know what this is. <laughs> yeah, I know what this is. It's it's a chaser. Uh, yeah, to... I know what. Uh, yeah, it's it's basically a shot with pickle juice on the back end. <laughs> it's. I've... And we. We say it out of love because I, I think both of you are still optimistic that Torrance can kind of turn it around a little bit. But oh. I think it, it's it's accurate for uh, so having a pickle juice chaser to a another shot. Um, I think sort of sums up Torrance's freshman and sophomore year, right? Yeah, it, it does. So he had he had a like hey like hey this this freshman year went pretty well okay sophomore year not so much <laughs> so it was like the the pickleback it was the the shot of pickle juice have I ever told you about <laughs> this is this this story can be listened to with, with, with it's PG thirteen so I'll just start off by saying that um, a couple years ago I went to one of my best friend's bachelor parties and um, he made like a mixed drink that was basically just like vodka hawaiian punch and like squirt lemon lime juice and you mixed it and <laughs> it's disgusting and like the problem is as you know things like settle out so like the first couple of glasses are mostly just like kind of fruity and kind of like citrusy and you're like oh yeah it isn't so bad and then you get 
near the end and it's all vodka and you <laughs> like are falling over well the, we, we did the pores ha- get a little heavy yeah the pores and pores you, this is how bad it was we were using a soup ladle to serve so this is so what we didn't have was like a big enough punch bowl um and one of the guys at the bachelor party decided oh in college we used to just go to the local jimmy johns and ask them if they had like these old buckets that they used to have the pickles in and so because the, they'll give them away and like they don't need them so this gentleman went and procured us a pickle bucket from a jimmy johns and that's what we mix this drink in now what this gentleman didn't do was ask had the pickle bucket been washed out so Ooh. um early on the pores were pretty good like the top things like the squirt was great and like the kool-aid's great and but as you get down not only do you get vodka but you've gotten now like the remnants of the pickle juice with the vodka as you're finishing it and it might have been the worst decision i ever made worst decision i've ever made consuming alcohol in my life was to have one glass and go yeah i'm gonna power through for another three or four of them so that's why I'm, my aversion to pickleback is so strong because i've consumed them on mass and uh it's not good the results are are, are, are uh not what you want so little little side detour there on why pickleback is so offensive to me just in terms of words um <laughs> now the one that i think most people would say is the most obvious one to assign is to give uh, a manhattan to drew smith workmanlike straightforward um know what you're gonna get it's tasty you're usually gonna be happy um, it's reliable yeah it's manhattan is in my opinion like it's it's a classic cocktail it is uh an essential cocktail you you need this cocktail in your arsenal it's uh it's everything that drew smith is it, it's essential yep yeah it's uh you know you show up you don't you, you look at the cocktail menu and you're like man if you're like me i can't recognize am i gonna like any of these things oh i <laughs> that's a fancy name for a manhattan right there i'm getting that drink and then you feel good and you avoid mm-hmm. buying something you're gonna hate um i think this one's correct xavier pinson is a martini um man it's all about the day and who's making it for what the results are going to be when a martini is made well it's fantastic uh it is it is in my opinion the like simplest just best cocktail when it's made well when it's not made well um it can it can be a bit of a disaster never shake your martini folks don't, don't shake xavier pinson either don't, don't do that you, you might break something <laughs> um Christian Braun House barrel aged cocktails. I think that 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 should make sense to anyone. <laughs> um, so the reason I like I like this as the analogy is because so barrel aging anything is always going to be yeah, uh, time and tedious process. Yeah, like like and you never know exactly what you're going to get out of it. Uh, you kind of hope for the best, and it usually works out. Uh, but it is it is time consuming and. Uh, and if it's time-consuming and it turns out great, then it was well worth it. Uh, but it also might not work out. So, uh, Mark Smith is a Negroni. Um, 
you're gonna so start I like this. about Stanley Tucci again, and I'm I was literally <laughs> bringing this up. So why uh, why Negroni? I think um, a Negroni is a very simple and underrated cocktail because it is it is three very uh, very simple ingredients. Um, it it meets um, all your expectations when you drink it. Uh, it's very straightforward, kind of basic, um, but it is so good and so effective that I think uh, I, I really think more people should should be Negroni drinkers. I think we're gonna. We almost made that the signature cocktail at the wedding this week. Alas, we chose Manhattan's and a gin and tonic. With I probably have like at least one Negroni a week. I probably make myself a Negroni at least once a week. See, I do an old fashioned probably at least once a week. That, that's my and I don't really care for old fashions. Uh, I know the bitter mix. Sometimes if you, if you screw up the bitters, that that can. I just think like a Manhattan is a better better drink if you want a whiskey drink. Uh, I don't I don't want all that sweetened um, additive to to my whiskey. I'll just I'll just drink it on the rocks, or I'll have it as a Manhattan. That's sort of. I, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't cocktail shame what people like. Well, you, you like what you like. It's yeah. just, it's not, it's not for me. Uh, Drew Bugs is a margarita. Um, I forget like why we chose margarita for Drew Bugs. I think we had a, I think we said it was, it was because he's from the West Coast. Um, <laughs> it was some stupid like it, you know, it tastes really good on the beach, and he's from Hawaii yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> We didn't even pick like something with like Kahlua in it, which we should have done if we were doing Hawaii. We should have done something like that or Malibu. We should have picked a Malibu-based drink uh, if we were going to do that. Uh, Kobe Brown is a whiskey sour, um, which I think is particularly apt because, man, a lot of people um, try whiskey sours. They try really hard, and they sometimes they just don't work out, and they don't pan out. But hey... Sometimes they do, and the results are fantastic. And that's how I thought of Kobe's freshman season. Um, tried a lot of different stuff. Maybe it always didn't work, but he didn't doubt the sincerity of the attempt. And hey, uh, some days, though, he'd find a way to make something work out for you. So whiskey sours are that. Um, I still have no clue what Ed Chang is. Um, we skipped over Tillman, which I, I is personally like, I think... Tillman's was, maybe my my second well, favorite I, I, to I, the rusty nail. <laughs> I, was, I was saving Tillman for the crescendo here, <clears throat> so we could go out with that on a bang. Um, well, so, I mean, I think I'm I'm kind of giving up on Ed Chang. I just don't know enough. Like, I don't know what we expect from Ed Chang. Um, so maybe he's like the you know the the thing where the bartender takes all the remaining liquor in the uh, what's the little little you know drain pad that they have i forget the name of it um and just pours it into a shot glass and like that's the challenge it's probably going to be horrible but um i mean i'm not saying that jinx's probably going to be horrible that's probably a bad analogy um it's from omaha so i could look at the favorite drink in omaha and we could just make him that uh but continue with tillman uh, how, how about how about Ed Chang is like a like a milk punch? I don't even know what a milk punch is. So a milk punch is um, 
it well, it's, it can be really, really great. They're they're kind of challenging. They have some weird ingredients, um, you know, and it doesn't really it doesn't give you the impression that it's going to be good, but it is actually a really tasty thing. And it and when you uh, when you have kind of a big party, it's nice to have a milk punch there. You can just sort of go to and um, you know little little break. It's not quite like you know people might associate like an eggnog, um, but there is milk in it. <laughs> so explain why you think milk punch works here. Well, so again, like I, I just think it, like Ed Chang is sort of an unknown thing. If I tell you, hey, there's milk punch here uh, for everybody at the party, you're going to be like, well, that's kind of unusual. I didn't expect Ed Chang to be at the party. But here he is at the party. Maybe I'll give him a shot. And you don't necessarily want to like, you know, you're not drinking Ed Chang all night, but you start with an Ed Chang. And then maybe, you know, towards the end of the half, you have another Ed Chang. And, and so like, it's not one of those things that you want to rely a lot on, um, but it's 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 solid and some uh, some filler time there. I mean, maybe, you, maybe you've been like having a few <laughs> too many Kobe Browns and you just want to change it up. You just decide you need something a little more savory instead. Yeah. Please get to the Tillman thing because this is this is your this is what you wanted. We're we're going we're going over time. So why Jeremiah Tillman is a tiki drink, and we didn't necessarily like. I, I think I was probably searching. So, um, I mean, one of my favorite uh, tiki drinks probably doesn't quite fit. Um, but I think like a, a zombie might be a good one. Um, I'm not sure if anybody's familiar with a zombie, um, but it's basically two kinds of rum and uh, Do you something light it called on fire? Uh, um, no, not. I don't think so. Uh, I mean, you can. Um, See, I'm but, more so, familiar with a hurricane. In is so a hurricane. Yeah, a hurricane is like it's pretty boozy uh i mean there so there's like 30 or 40 different kind of i mean so tiki drink is basically it's usually like a, m- a, several different kinds of rum mm-hmm. there's usually uh a couple different kinds of juice there's a sweetener uh there's something that's going to add some tartness to it um you know so like a tartness would be like a, a flarinum uh, Campari, um, you know, something like that. That's going to, you know, give it kind of like a sharp, um, you know, flavor, but, but you get like, you get sweet from the rum, you get, uh, you know, like tartness from the juice also. Um, but why I think Tillman kind of works as a, as a tiki drink is because it has all the ingredients, right? Yeah. So a, a tiki drink typically has like six to seven sometimes ten different ingredients that go into it um and like when things are going well with tiki drinks uh when they're made correctly and and all that kind of stuff they're phenomenal like tiki drinks can just be outstanding um but it's also kind of like they're kind of prone to disaster and i think like what you talk about hurricanes i think about like mardi gras and like people uh, like s- s- ladling, you know, horrible hurricane mix with you know 
uh, Everclear mixed into it, um, you know, and putting into plastic cups and, and, and vomiting most of it up later. Uh, like there's definitely a, a dark side to tiki drinks. Um, but again, like if you have the right ingredients, which Tillman very much does have the right ingredients and you get everything kind of moving the way it should, like he can be outstanding. There's just, there can be a dark side. And I think that's Jeremiah Tillman in a nutshell. <laughs> so Jeremiah Tillman can be frat, mar- can be a frat, uh, drink, or he can be a very, very nice classic Mai Tai. Uh, yeah, like like if you think about it, like so like the the frat house party you you went to in college, that's like, you know, had what, they used to call it what like jungle juice. Yes, yes. Out of like a a trash can. I mean, it was those things. That was disgusting. Listen, listen, listen. And that's like the, that's like the night where where like Tillman loses his head and and like gets technical and and fouls out of the game. So that's like I don't know about you. Night. I had great fun. <laughs> At Hoochfest and other man eater hosted events that involve trash cans, Everclear, um, and apples. I, I don't want to. That's sacrilege. Sacrilege. Great times. Great times. <laughs> it was fantastic. All right. Sir. So I, I, I would like to hear from our listeners uh, as to what we got right, what we got wrong. Uh, I feel like the list is pretty good. Um, I know most of us listen to uh, our podcast for the whiskey and, and cocktail talk, um, but for those that like a little bit of basketball tied in there, uh, yeah, just just shoot me a, a tweet. Let me know uh, what you disagree with. <laughs> Direct all your criticism to Sam. Direct them all to Sam. Um, we're at 70 minutes, and I think <laughs> I'm going to be very inelegant. I think it's time we get out of here. Well, yeah, so Matt's getting married this weekend. Everybody tweet at Matt. Tell him, uh, you know, happy marriage and all that kind of nonsense. Like, I don't even, like, what do you say? Congratulations, right? That's what you say? Congrats on getting married? I think so. Um, congrats congrats on not screwing it up. Like, don't screw it up. I don't think I could screw it up. I feel actually really good. Everything's I'm knocking, fine. knocking on wood. No, I, Elle's awesome. She puts up with you uh, just like my wife puts up with me. Uh, we're blessed. What can we say? We are indeed. Uh, so I think we went long because uh, we added an extra week in between our normal recording. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll, so we'll probably get another couple weeks. We'll hopefully know more about where Mizzou's scheduling stands by then, and we can actually talk about uh, some season previews. Maybe we'll have a guest on. Who knows? Who knows? Please give us a schedule. Just give us a schedule already. That's all we want, really. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Um, Sorry we went long. Hope you're enjoying the uh, Before the Box Score pods. Uh, make sure you're subscribed. Uh, hate mail goes to Mitch. Send me your tweets on what we got right with the, uh, or right or wrong on the cocktail stuff. I'm really curious. Uh, and we'll be back in two weeks. Until then. <laughs>